Good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles again this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We return this morning to our final applications of the book of Ruth. I'm so grateful to see all of you here today. It's really a blessing to see Mark and Vicki here this morning. I've been praying for you, Mark, and we're grateful for you. And uh, we'll continue to pray. Would you stand with me again, please, another time? And let's read together verses 1 through 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. Join me as we read this together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we again seek by your grace and by the ministry of your Spirit to apply the lessons of the book of Ruth to our lives, We pray that you would guide us, that you would cause us to remember the things that we've seen here, that we would take these things as examples for our instruction and turn to Christ, who is our rock of salvation. Father, indeed, you you will not give us temptation, testing greater than the level of maturity to which you have brought us in Christ. We're so grateful, Father, that you you keep the door through which temptation comes to us, even from the evil one. You will not allow us to experience a temptation or test or trial beyond that which you have prepared us for by your grace. And even with the temptations and trials and tests that we do experience, Father, you've promised to provide for us all that we need in Christ, indeed the way of escape, so that we may be able to endure it. Father, thank you so much that all we need is found in Christ, our rock and our redeemer. And so may we experience even this morning through your word and by your spirit, the power that you have promised to give to us. The power of the inner man that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit so that you would be glorified in our lives, that you would work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure so that Christ would be exalted among us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, last week we, we began by reminding ourselves of the main purpose, the main overall purpose of the book of Ruth. We gave the title to this particular series, Behold the Steadfast Love and Faithfulness of Yahweh. 
And the main idea of the book of Ruth has been in steadfast love, Yahweh, by his sovereign hand of providence, faithfully does all that he has promised to do in order to bring his chosen covenant people from fall to glory, in order to fulfill all of his redemptive plans, and in order to bring glory to his name. And of course, Ruth is just one of the pieces in the puzzle, one of the strands in the great tapestry of all that God has planned and purposed to do in Christ forever for his glory. And so that has been our attempt to follow the hermeneutic of Jesus in John 5, 39 in 40, when he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that speak of me. And so that's what the end of the book of Luke also tells us, that Jesus, in walking with his disciples, showed them, beginning with Moses, all the things that must take place concerning himself. The Old Testament points us and prepares us for the person and work of Jesus Christ. We also began last week to follow a bit of Paul's interpretational key, and that is to see these Old Testament accounts as examples, like we read in this text this morning. Examples. Not so that we can trust in our own strength to try to be moral giants, but so that, again, we can look at negative examples to avoid and godly examples to follow and turn to Christ, which is the substance of this text. The spiritual rock was Christ. Through Christ, the people in the wilderness had all that they needed to endure every test and trial and temptation that they faced, and they were to turn to him and trust, rest on the rock of Christ. And so we look at these examples who have gone before us to turn to Christ. The Lord is our rock, like we sing, the Lord our rock in whom we hide, the shelter in the time of storm. And so by his continuing faithfulness in our lives, we're to seek to overcome various temptations and walk in godliness. And so in light of this truth, which we looked at in more detail last week, we've asked ourselves then what lessons and principles may we glean from both positive and negative examples throughout the book of Ruth specifically. So that then we can turn to Christ again as our spiritual resource. And so last week we looked at the first two, and this morning I plan to look at the, the a second three, so three through five in your outline that I've given to you in your bulletin. Last week we looked at learning about responding faithfully when common sense runs cross-grain with following Christ. Of course, Elimelech and his family experienced that, and, and we do as well. Secondly, last week we looked at responding faithfully to the Lord's discipline. I just want to make an additional note there, just in reminding us that God is sovereign over all things. Scriptures teach this so clearly, and God uses all things to work together for our growth in Christ-likeness, for his eternal glory. He uses God lovingly and wisely and skillfully, sovereignly uses the effects of the fall, appointed calamity, undeserved blessings, even the sins of others against us, even the consequences of our own sin. God uses all these things skillfully and sinlessly in order to change us into the image of Christ. Now, when we say that, I don't want you to misunderstand what I mean. I'm not saying at all that that God is guilty of sin in any way. God is not responsible in a guilty way for anyone's sin. And this does not mean also that, that, that we have an excuse to continue in sin. This shows us the sovereign shepherding of our Savior to discipline us and to use anything that may be at his disposal so that he can work in our lives to transform us into the image of Christ and so that we may share his holiness as Hebrews 12 says. So he does discipline every one of his children, doesn't he? And often his discipline takes on the form of training. We talked about that, training us out of our immaturities or chastening us 
out of our rebellions, and we, we need that. And so the, the initial call of Hebrews 12 is that we won't think lightly about the discipline of the Lord. We need to give it much prayerful, serious thought when God is at work in our lives, not to, to let it be like water under the bridge, but to think very clearly and, and prayerfully, God, what are you doing in my life? You have not brought this upon me for no reason. Are you seeking to discipline me for some immaturity in my life? Are you seeking to chasten me for some rebellion against you? What are you doing, Father? Show me. That's what the exhortation there in Hebrews 12, I believe verse 5 says, do not think lightly about the Lord's discipline. And then it says, nor be weary when reproved by him. Sometimes the discipline of the Lord can be long and heavy, and yet the text exhorts us to remember that it is a very tangible expression of God's love to us. For the Lord disciplines every son whom he receives. And if you're not sharing his discipline, you're not his son. That's what the text says. And so this is God saying to us, I love you, I care about you, I'm working in your life for your good and for my glory. Don't be weary of this. It's so that you may share my holiness. This is Father's lovingly, loving discipline in our lives. So we learn, we see that in the book of Ruth as well, because Elimelech and his family did not think accurately initially about the discipline of the Lord. They they stayed in Moab for 10 more years. And so may our rock, Jesus Christ, enable us to respond rightly to the loving discipline of the Lord in our lives. Number three, here's a third lesson that I feel is appropriate to glean from the book of Ruth, and it's responding faithfully to the opportunities God gives us to share the gospel. You say, well, how in the world do we get that from the book of Ruth. Well, hold on, we'll get there. I'll show you the section in the book that we'll look to there. But I would like to show you this important principle, but in order for us to to be prepared to receive it from the book of Ruth, I want to first consider some general truths that are essential to sharing the gospel clearly, accurately, and boldly. Unfortunately, in our day, there are many people who are sharing the gospel with one another in a way that is unbiblical. Both the message itself of the gospel is deficient. It's it's an insufficient gospel. It's not enough. What what often is communicated isn't enough to to provide salvation. Often the the person's heart hasn't been prepared by the law of God. And often the, the response to the gospel isn't a biblical response. We hear things often like, well, all you need to do is ask Jesus to come into your heart. Where do we see that in the scriptures? That is never the invitation of the apostles when they share the gospel, nor is it of Christ. And so we'll look at that, and then we'll come to the part in in the book of Ruth where this can be addressed as well. It's important as we share the gospel that we include certain truths in a certain order. We must begin, for example, with the Creator. This is essential. Think about it. True salvation makes absolutely no sense. True biblical salvation makes absolutely no sense apart from divine punishment in hell. If... if if that is not there, if, if an understanding of divine punishment in hell is not there, then what you're offering is something else, some other kind of salvation that the Bible doesn't talk about, because that's what the salvation is. However, divine punishment in hell makes absolutely no sense apart from a biblical understanding of sin. Right? And in order for the gospel to make sense, each one of these truths has to come heavily upon the heart of the hearer. You mean I'm under divine punishment? Why? For my sin? 
What's that? And a biblical understanding of sin makes absolutely no sense apart from a biblical understanding of divine law that all men are responsible to obey. And a divine law that all men are responsible to obey makes absolutely no sense apart from a biblical view of the creator, God, and king of the universe. You see? These are important dominoes that one must hit the next. Therefore, when sharing the gospel with others, we must begin with the truth about God. We must begin where the Bible begins, where the gospel of John begins. In the beginning, what? God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. That's where you begin the gospel. And so you may share the gospel by pointing to, this is one way of doing that, one way of hitting those pieces so that the gospel actually makes sense to people and it's bearing, it bears down on their heart. You can share the gospel by pointing to six titles that belong to God. Here is one way that I like to think about it. Let me shuffle through. I have a little slide here to visualize this for you. First, I like to begin with God as creator, the world. God as creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke everything into existence. And if he is then the creator God, then, then that also means something else. It means that he is indeed the king of all creation. Because if you create something, then you are the king and owner of it. And you rule over it because it belongs to you. And is this creator, God and king, he has been so gracious and generous with his creation. You can see it at the end of the book of uh, Genesis chapter 1 where, where God provides all things that his creatures need. And he blesses them and he gives them a, a mission and a purpose for which to live. And provides all they need to accomplish that. And in that, God has also become the lawgiver. For he must establish a guideline that is in conformity with his own character because we exist as his creation to extend his reign in the world by reflecting his character in our lives. Indeed, we are made as creatures in his image, his likeness. And so he's the creator. He is the king owner. He is the good lawgiver who provides in a way a pattern for life so that we can rightly extend his reign in the earth. However, what have we done? We have rejected this God. We have rejected his law. We have sought as a rebellious creation to enjoy all of his creations for our own selfish benefit without giving him thanks or worship. We want to be God. We want to use all that he has made for our own purposes to build our own kingdom to satisfy and gratify ourselves. And that's it. That's the, that's the essence of sin. And so God then is also a just lawgiver or a just judge. Because being good and righteous and just, he must therefore punish sin. Anything that would destroy his creation, anything that would dishonor his glory, he must act if he is good and just. Sometimes people may say, well, He's not like the judges of men. God is gracious and merciful and kind. And you can say to them, actually, God is far more just and good and righteous and holy than any human judge. He won't be bribed. He won't miss any piece of information. He is omniscient and perfectly holy. And therefore, he must punish sin. But he is also a savior, a merciful and gracious savior. And therefore, not only is he the judge, but he's also the one who made a provision so that we who deserve his righteous wrath to be poured out on us forever in, in, in the place called hell, that we could be free from that judgment, that we can be free from guilt, that we can be forgiven, that we can be declared righteous. And that provision is Christ through his perfect life, his atoning death, his resurrection, his intercession. And his return, sinners like us can be 
justified and sanctified and glorified and brought again into the very presence of God in which we were originally created and called to enjoy him forever. And if you will receive Jesus as Savior, then he will also become your Lord and shepherd. And you will long and love him for the remainder of your existence on into eternity. You will take his Lordship and submit to him and live your life for him. Are you willing? So those are the elements of the gospel. That's, that's how you begin to share the gospel with people. You have to have those elements in order for the gospel to make sense. Now, once we have shared the truths of the gospel, it's important that we call the one to whom we are speaking the gospel to respond to the gospel in the way that Jesus explained the response itself. Jesus commanded the hearers of the gospel to respond how? What is the response? Repent and believe. That's, that was the command. That's what the apostles said all through the book of Acts. Repent and believe. In Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, we see that very, very clearly. I'll read the text to you. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Sadly, the call to respond biblically to the gospel is too often left out, isn't it? Think about that. And especially the call to repentance is left out. Why is that? Could it be because it is the costly side of the response to the gospel? What does it mean to repent? In some sense, we could say it means to turn away from something. The word literally means to turn. Are you willing to turn away from something in order to turn to something? Are you willing to let go of this in order to receive this? In fact, we may say that to repent and to believe are two sides of the same coin of response to the gospel. In other words, no one can truly trust in Christ unless they're also willing to turn away from all other hopes for salvation. But there's always a sense of loss when one turns away from something in order that they have in which they have hoped for a long time in order to turn to Christ and trust in him alone. <clears throat> As witnesses for Christ, if we fail to explain something of the costly side of the response to the gospel, we actually may run the risk of leading people to think that they can simply add Jesus and all of the riches of his grace to everything in their present beliefs and religious experiences as well as their life practices. The call of the gospel is to be willing to begin to turn away from many things as you embrace Christ alone. That's repentance and faith. Now, what does this have to do with the book of Ruth? And, and we'll, we'll, we'll explain a little bit more about repentance in just a moment, but I want to make the connection at this point. What does this have to do with the book of Ruth? Well, I believe, if you remember with me back in chapter 1, particularly verses 8 and following, Naomi explained the cost of taking refuge under the shadow of Yahweh's wings to her daughters-in-law in Ruth 1, 8 through 15. I think that's an accurate explanation of kind of the confusing wording we come to when we listen to Naomi talk to these two daughters-in-law. She said, Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And 
They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your daughter, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. We read that and we're confused by it because we're like, Naomi, what are you saying? You're telling these two daughters-in-laws of yours to, to go back to the gods of Moab? What future do they have there? Yes, they have material wealth. They'll get a husband. They'll have children. They'll have land. They'll have possessions immediately. But no God. Why? Why would you tell them that? And I, I think that the explanation is that <coughs> Naomi has learned the cost of being faithful to Yahweh. And she wants to be certain that her daughters-in-law understand what they are going into should they turn away from the false gods of Moab and embrace the one true God, Yahweh. It will often require great faith. When earthly provisions grow slim, will you still trust Yahweh? And so we see then following the God-ordained fruit of her witness, which was genuine conversion in Ruth, which included by God's grace and his grace alone, a willing commitment to costly repentance. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. (coughs) Excuse me. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. An amazing work of conversion. Ruth is abandoning her gods for Yahweh, her people, for Yahweh's people, her land, for Yahweh's land. And as Boaz said so wisely later, she had taken shelter in the shadow of Yahweh's wings. But this is but the beginning of repentance, isn't it? A willingness to turn from one thing and embrace the other. In a faithful call to repentance, when we talk to people, like Naomi's talking to Ruth, what should we call them to repent from, to be willing to turn away from? One thing I see in the scripture is idolatry. You see that here? Idolatry. I'm reminded of a text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 gives a glorious account of the conversion of the Thessalonian people under the ministry of Paul and Silas and Timothy. And verses 9 and 10 say this about the Thessalonian people. Paul is recounting for them the testimony that he's heard from people who surrounded this particular church. He says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is an important part of repentance, isn't it? To say no to all other false gods and to say yes to the one true God. I embrace you. Unfortunately, in our culture, syncretism is commonplace. I can add Jesus to my list of many valid deities. Fits very well with a relativistic culture, doesn't it? That's not true salvation. That's not repentance. Repentance is a willingness 
to begin to say no to all other gods and embrace the one true God. Another element that we call a person to repent from is sin. Isaiah, the text that comes to mind is Isaiah 55 and verse 7. And notice that the word repentance isn't necessarily in these texts. Excuse me. But the word turn is Isaiah 55, 7. Start in verse 6. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What an amazing invitation to repentance, isn't it? That's, that's the same word, return, that we find in the first chapter of Ruth, which overflows with the concept of turning, repentance, conversion. The invitation is to let the wicked person forsake his way, and even the unrighteous man, his thoughts, <clears throat> and then return to the Lord. Is that the call we give? That's the call to repentance. Or even the thirdly thing, the third thing I, th- I think of is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And one of the clearest texts that I could think of about turning from self-righteousness to Christ is Philippians. Would you turn to this one with me? In Philippians chapter 3, when we make the call to repent and believe, we are inviting the hearer to turn from false gods, to turn from a life of sin, at least to begin to grieve that sin and to be willing to turn from whatever the Lord would convict them about along their journey of of following Christ. But Philippians 3, Paul speaks of his own willingness to turn from self-righteousness. This is so important because salvation does not take place in the life of a sinner because of Christ's work and your work. Right? You're not justified by Christ's works and your works. And so in the, in, in the coming to Christ, we must be willing to let go of our own righteousness to embrace Christ's. That's essential. I think of the song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply what? To your cross I claim. Another phrase, could my, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no languor no, no rest no? All for sin, what? Could not atone. You must save, and you alone. That's, that's what we're calling people to in repentance. Let go of self-righteousness and embrace Christ's righteousness alone. Even Paul had to learn this. <clears throat> he gives his pedigree, his religious Hebrew pedigree, in verses 2 through 6. But then he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I thought I had in my own self-righteousness, I counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. You can't have self-righteousness and Christ to stand righteous before God. It does not work. God will not share his saving glory with anyone. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have, what? Suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's salvation. And you know, was it easy for Paul to let go of all of his many years of Pharisaic self-righteousness? It wasn't easy because he says there, I have what? suffered the loss. I have grieved this loss. It is hard for people who live so long 
pursuing self-righteousness to look at it all and to declare it worthless like Paul did. But when you want Christ, and you know that you can't have Christ unless you let go of self-righteousness, okay, when you see Christ as so precious, then this becomes worthless. I want Christ. Okay, I'll take his righteousness, and that's all I need. Well, Paul was willing. And that's the work of the Spirit in his heart to bring him to repentance. So we do, we call people from idolatry to repent from idolatry, to repent from sin, to repent from self-righteousness. Now, as I say these things, I don't want you to misunderstand. Repentance can be a misunderstood issue to talk about. Repentance does not mean this. It does not mean that all sin, all idolatry, and all self-righteousness must be eradicated from your life before you come to Christ or even as you're coming to Christ. If that were true, none of us could be saved. For none of us can even begin to repent perfectly or completely. Have we ever exercised perfect repentance or faith? No, that's not what saves. It's not the perfect instrument that saves. It's the object that saves. And Christ is always the object of our faith and repentance. And if that were true, if it were true that we had to have all of our sin eradicated and and so on, then repentance would also become a work earning salvation with God. Repentance is not a good work that earns salvation. Repentance will never be a flawless response in our hearts to the gospel. Repentance, like faith, is a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a sinner that must and will begin, however infantile, but it will begin at the moment of conversion, however flawed and feeble. But it will continue and grow and mature for the remainder of that person's earthly life following Christ. Repentance is a necessary means or spiritual instrument by which we receive Christ and all in him. If two things cannot be held at the same time, we must then be willing to let go of one thing in order to embrace the new thing. Repentance begins with a simple spirit-wrought desire to grieve our sin and, and to be willing to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ. Repentance will begin to be seen as a sinner mourns over their sin. And it will be proven to be genuine as it continues and grows over the course of one's life. Again, repentance will always be flawed, just like our faith, but it is still repentance unto life when it is directed toward Christ alone, who is the perfect Savior. Now, a few more things I want to say about this. The challenge is, as we said, there's always some cost to repentance, isn't there? Have you ever thought about what are the costs then to turning from idols and sin and self-righteousness? What is the cost? One of the costs I think of that is often so hard for a sinner, for any of us, to swallow is our pride. Letting go of our pride is a cost of repentance. James 4, 8 through 10 is a call to repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. And what? He will exalt you. So, humility. Repentance, true repentance always requires humility. It's a cost of our pride. It's also difficult because it can even cost us wealth. Luke 16, 13, Jesus pointed this out. Sometimes following him in repentance can cost us earthly possessions, earthly wealth, and so on. This is why it's so hard for many to repent and follow Christ. This is why many in the parable of the soils did not Evidence true saving faith. They loved the things of the world too much. And even very, very painfully, Jesus said that sometimes this repentance unto life can cost us family, can't it? And I know some of you have felt that, haven't you? 
family. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, how great crowds accompanied him, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's so many people that want many things that Jesus offers. But he will give them to those who walk in repentance toward him. And sometimes that repentance is very costly. Because it will cost us relationships. In other words, Jesus is saying that there's no one that you can love more than you love me when it comes to a decision, whether you're going to follow the beliefs of a family member or the truth of Christ, you follow Christ. That's costly. And this is why Jesus then invites those who are interested in following him to count the cost. We see that in the end of Luke 14, verses 28 to 33. Jesus calls these Desiring followers to think for a moment before they follow him. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to counter encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and so asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying that repentance and following of him requires that everything else take a second position to him. I think we need to give people a fair idea of what they're, what they're coming into. Are you willing? Are you willing to follow Christ like this? I think that's something of what Naomi was trying to do. This is an important lesson that we must learn from the story of Ruth because we've been called to be faithful witnesses to Christ. And I know it's hard. This kind of witnessing isn't easy. Think about how Jesus talked with the people around him. (laughs) That takes being filled with the Spirit, doesn't it? Therefore, we turn to Christ, our rock, in our need and ask him to provide to us water and oil in the Spirit through his work, to meet our need there and we would be faithful to him. Another lesson I want to share with you this morning, number four, is the lesson of fullness, emptiness, and fullness. Fullness, emptiness, and fullness. We've said those words many times over the last several weeks as we've looked at the book of Ruth. This principle is seen in both the lives of Naomi and Ruth. You remember in, in, the, in the life of Naomi, she left Bethlehem to go to Moab full of her own self, full of pride, full of human wisdom, full of worldly hope. And how did she come back to Bethlehem? She said it, I came back empty. She says that at the end of the chapter. I left full, I came back empty. And this is the work of Yahweh in my life. She, she knew that, she admitted it. But then... The rest of the book shows how Yahweh filled her with himself and with great blessings through grace. And the same thing for Ruth. She was full. She was at one time full of her false gods and full of ungodly, ungodly relationships. She had a husband. She, she had land. She had worldly provisions. And again, God, God emptied her. And then he filled her again with himself and his gracious blessings. But this is the way that God lovingly works, not only in Ruth and Naomi's lives, but in every one of his children. Fullness, emptiness, fullness. 
We must know this and get used to it and embrace it and even be content and joyful in it. God empties us. God weakens us in a human sense. Have you noticed this? God humbles us. God afflicts us. God breaks us. Why? Why? Does he do that to be unkind? Does he do it because he likes in his power to exercise some sort of sinister discomfort in our lives? No, he does it so that he may fill us with himself. So that he may fill us with gracious divine blessings, so that he may mature us, he may prepare us to use us and bring glory to himself through us. Think about how many of God's children throughout the pages of Scripture experienced a great emptying, which was then followed by a glorious filling by God. How many of God's children experienced a great humbling from God's hand, followed by a great exaltation? Who are you thinking of right now in the Scriptures? (laughs) Job. How many of you were thinking of Job? Right? Job had a family, ten children, and a wife. He had wealth, great prosperity, great health. And then it was all taken from him. He was emptied. He was greatly emptied. And why? Why did God do that? God did that in his life to prove that Job loved him for who he is, not for the things that he was giving him, right? For the glory of God. For, for he, be, he became very useful in the hand of God to, to bring glory to God in his worth all throughout the, the recesses of the universe before angels and demons and the host of heaven. Job did not know all that, but he knew he was being emptied by God. And did God leave him there in that very low place of emptiness? No, God exalted Job again. How about Joseph? Joseph started off the favorite of his family, the gifted one, received a a robe to signify that that love that was being poured out upon him. He He was given a dream by God and promised great things, but it soon began to decline from there, didn't it? He went from a pit to being a slave, to being accused, to being imprisoned, to being forgotten. How deep would the pit that Joseph was put into go? But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Because God then exalted him. God filled him again so that many lives could be saved and that God could work great glory through his life. How about Peter in the New Testament? Even Peter. Peter was the one who was full of himself, wasn't he? Of of any disciples, that's who we hear talking often and saying things like, Christ, that'll never happen to you. I will die in your place. Christ, I will never deny you. And yet he was brought very low, wasn't he? He was humbled from his place of pride. But then Christ came to him and restored him and filled him again, didn't he? He said, feed my sheep, feed my lamb and made him a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. See, that's what had to happen. Christ wouldn't use such a Peter as said things like, I will die in your place and uh, I will never deny you. He had to break Peter, humble Peter, empty Peter, and then fill him with himself. What about Paul? Paul had received great vision from God and was tempted then in his own sinful pride to boast of such things. But then God humbled him and weakened him by allowing a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Why? So that he could be then filled with the power of God. This is the way it is in the Christian life. This is the way it is in the Christian life. God is not intent on finding and using a man or woman that is full of human potential, wisdom, strength, and resource. That's not what God is after. God is intent on breaking, emptying, humbling, weakening his children so that they are filled with him, filled with his power, his presence, his ways, his will, his words, his blessing for his glory. 
God will use a man or woman for his glory only to the degree that he weakens them, empties them of themselves, and that they find they're all in him. And as God does this, he doesn't actually take anything of eternal value away from us. He only removes the obstacles that stand in the way of our receiving from him what is eternally valuable. Isn't that how God works? Let's receive that and take that. That's that's the way God works in, in our lives. The principle of fullness, emptiness, and fullness is another precious truth that we may learn from the story of Ruth. And may we be strengthened by it. May we have contentment and even joy in the working of God's providential hand in our lives and turn to Christ, our rock, in our weakness. He will see us through. He will enable us to walk those paths for his glory. One more lesson this morning. Number five, finding God's will through scripture, prayer, and providence. Finding God's will through scripture, prayer, and providence. You know what? I think this is a sizable enough one. I'm going to have to wait till next week. So let's just stop there and think about what we've been given in these two principles and ask the Lord to bless us in these fullness, emptiness, and fullness and responding faithfully to the opportunities God gives us to share the gospel. Well, you've heard the gospel this morning in that third point. And I would exhort any one of you today who has not yet responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. Would you think about that? If it doesn't make sense to you, if the gospel doesn't make sense to you and, and you're, you're struggling to understand what repentance and faith is, please come and talk with me. I'd love to, to spend time with you today and open God's word and show you the gospel, show you more of God's word about this. It's so important that you know the way of salvation and hear the call of God through Scripture. Let's stand together and pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we come together and we, we pick up these lessons one by one through the, the book of Ruth. We want to learn. We want to learn all that you have for us, Father. Very important things. And again, I ask you to enable us to take them and not turn to ourselves in our own strength, but to turn to the rock who is Christ. To take these things as examples and to rest in your saving power. Father, we ask you to work in us, to will and to work for your good pleasure. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.